Gold is transitioning from Gold Explorer to Mine Developer. We are well-funded. Located in stable eastern Canada, the Magino Gold Project has a robust production profile of 250,000 ounces a year. Strong project economics with a $939 million NPV. Total gold production is projected to be over 2.6 million ounces with an estimated mine life of 11 years. Drilling is underway and the scope of the project continues to grow. Please visit our website, www.prodigy.com gold.com and read more prodigy gold today's discovery tomorrow's future are you looking for a junior gold company that will give you upside exposure to major gold discovery potential cash flow and is located in a secure jurisdiction Goldrich offers you a unique opportunity and controls almost the entire historic Chandelar Mining District, located in the prolific Ambler Schist Belt in Alaska. The company is applying modern-day techniques to explore the district that previously hosted four hard rock gold mines and various placer operations. Visit Goldrich on the web at www.goldrichmining.com or look us up under the ticker symbol GRMC. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I want to thank our sponsors for the second hour of today's show, for making this show economically viable. Uh, they are Airway Energy, Clifton Star Resources, Gold Rich Mining Company, and Prodigy Gold. Well, as we just heard from former Federal Reserve economist Bill Bergman, the U.S. has been engaging in some very reckless behavior. That behavior is characterized by arrogance and a defiance of the people of the United States. No longer are we allowed to ask serious questions of our government, such as why did M1 explode in the weeks just prior to 9-11, at least partly responsible for enabling the arrogance of our government and the defiance of the people's right to know, what their government is doing has been, I believe, the advent of fiat money as opposed to the market's choice of money. The markets have historically chosen gold when free to do so as money for reasons that we have noted many times in this show in the past. But bankers and politicians hate gold because it provides market constraints against the arrogance of power and the ability to create money, their inventory, if you will, out of nothing, and to carry out endless wars and provide socialism until the system breaks down under its own weight. <clears throat> it may be, uh, that may take a long time for that process to unfold, but the breakdown of our global monetary system certainly seems like it is very much in progress now. 
And with that comes the increasing likelihood that we will soon return to a monetary standard in which gold plays a major role. An excellent new book has been written on this topic. It's called The Golden Revolution, How to Prepare for the Coming Global Gold Standard. And I'm really pleased to have with me today the author of that book in the person of John Butler. Mr. Butler has 18 years' experience in the, financial, in the global financial industry, having worked for European and U.S. investment banks in London, New York, and Germany. Prior to launching the Amphora Commodities Alpha Fund, he was managing director and head of the Index Strategies Group of, uh, at Deutsche Bank in London, where he was responsible for the development and marketing of uh, proprietary uh, systematic quantitative strategies for global interest rate markets. And prior to joining Deutsche Bank in 2007, John was managing director and head of European interest rate strategy at Lehman Brothers in London, where he and his team were voted number one in the Institutional Investors Research Survey. In addition to other research, he publishes Amphora Report Newsletter, which appears on several uh, major financial websites. A cum laude graduate at Occidental College in California, John holds a master's degree in international finance and economics from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy uh, associated with Harvard and Tufts University. Welcome, John. It's really a pleasure to have you on Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you, Jay. My pleasure. Um, I wanted to just uh, ask you about what's going on in Europe. You are in, in England now. Uh, the Greeks have just voted in a, um, a government that is reportedly in favor of keeping Greece in the euro. What are your thoughts with respect to the euro? Can it survive with all its existing countries in place? Will the weaker members peel off uh, onto their own, or will the euro eventually collapse entirely? What, what is your view on that? Well, my, my views on that uh, go back to even before the euro area was formed. I, I was part of a preparation group uh, at a bank in Germany uh, in the uh, mid through late 1990s, and we did some work regarding just how viable the euro area would be, uh, what sorts of monetary and fiscal policies would need to be followed for it to function properly and hold together, and, of course, what form some sort of breakup or crisis might take in the event that those monetary and fiscal policies were not, in fact, sustainable ones. And, you know, sure enough, here we are. Um, I think that based on the fact that you've seen a general divergence in fundamental economic competitiveness, between the periphery, including, of course, Greece, and the core, anchored by Germany, I think that it's going to be very difficult now for the euro to hold itself together without some combination of very dramatic economic restructuring on the periphery and or very dramatic increases in fiscal transfers, guarantees uh, for banks, and other forms of support from the core. Politically, all of that is extremely difficult to put together, and I'm highly skeptical that, in fact, all of the decisions will be made that would need to be made for the euro area to hold together in its current form. If I have to choose what does happen uh, as we move through this workout process of what is a, an unsustainable situation, I do think the euro holds together in some form, but I think it is much more likely that, in fact, you end up with a euro core anchored by Germany, which retains a single currency and which probably includes France and the Benelux countries, mm -hmm. probably also Austria, but that essentially the entire periphery ends up leaving, reintroducing national currencies and devaluing those substantially uh, 
before this is all over. And I, if I had to give a time frame on all that, I think it's probably no more than about two years' time when you'll see that fairly significant split between the core on the one hand and the periphery on the other. Mm-hmm. Well, that certainly certainly makes uh, makes sense. Uh, the United States, of course, uh, is trying to hold things together, too, to, an, to a certain extent. Uh, certainly, uh, some people call them loans. I think Mr. Bernanke chooses to call them swaps. But in any event, I believe a $2 trillion facility was provided by uh, the Federal Reserve to the Europeans. And earlier on, uh, after the Lehman Brothers uh, problem, of course, Mr. Bernanke also sent money over to individual banks and Bloomberg uh, here uh, wanted to know and, and actually filed a lawsuit, and the courts required the Fed then to say which banks they sent the money to. This time it seems as though the Fed is sending money to Europe, uh, to, to the European bank, and letting them distribute it. But how far do you think the United States might be willing to go uh, to encumber its citizens to, uh, you know, to try to keep things together, to hold things together? I mean, at what point is this thing going to break apart and they're going to give up? The Greek people apparently decided that they wanted to uh, try to hold things together. But, you know, um, what's going to eventually cause it to break down? Well, I think the Greeks are of symbolic importance primarily. As an economy, they're tiny. I mean, if, if you did want to bail it out completely, I mean, completely assume the debt, completely underwrite the banks, uh, and oversee a general economic restructuring. In, in theory, you know, these are things that Europe in general, in aggregate, would find it was you know, capable of, of, of doing. But it's of symbolic importance because if, if Greece decides it's not willing to endure the economic pain up mm-hmm. front to restructure itself, then that, you know, that sends a message to Spain, to Portugal, to Italy. And also, of course, Ireland has been struggling through these times. So it's really of a symbolic importance. And when you mention the United States, I mean, that's an interesting one, because the United States is watching this from across the Atlantic, but with a very, very keen interest, because if Europe cannot get its act together, and if banks around the periphery, or perhaps also in the core, start getting in very serious trouble... At some point, the linkages between the European banking system and the U.S. banking system will start to place stress on the U.S. banking system, and the Fed is going to be drawn into it whether they want to be or not. In fact, if you look at it from the Fed's perspective, I would argue they would prefer to extend credit as necessary, to cooperate with the ECB as necessary, and maybe even to lend directly to uh, distressed European financial institutions as necessary to ever prevent reaching that point where all of a sudden the big U.S. money center banks come knocking and say, uh, you know, we're terribly sorry, but our exposure to the Spanish banks, the Italian banks, the French banks, whatever it is, is just so large that if this is not sorted out within the next 48 hours, we will need a bailout. Now, the Fed doesn't want it to come to that, so I, in fact, believe they will try to preempt it, if necessary, and if Germany and France are unable or unwilling to underwrite their own bank's liabilities and provide guarantees of their own, I think the Fed might step into the gap. I think the the unprecedented sorts of actions we've seen since 2008, which, as you've pointed out, Jay, not only uh, directly uh, guaranteed elements of the U.S. banking system, but in some cases even directly were involved in guaranteeing the liabilities of European Mm -hmm. um, banking institutions, I don't see what would be stopping them this time around. I mean, if anything, given the lessons of 2008 from the Fed's perspective as to how important it is from their perspective to stay ahead of events, 
they might be very forthcoming with various forms of support uh, if things in Europe go from bad to worse. Mm-hmm. Well, then what's to stop the the Fed from from doing this endlessly, and why uh, why do you think that it's uh, that it's likely that we will return to the go- a gold revolution as you're writing in your book? Um, I mean, how far can they push this? Because clearly, the last thing that Mr. Bernanke wants, and the, and the rest of the establishment wants right now, is a return to the gold standard, at least in the in the Western world. Um, so, what will cause this to break down ultimately? Then, I mean, well, can't what they you just have. You can't well, what, continue doing what we're doing endlessly. Well, no is the short answer, and in fact, my book is an attempt to elaborate on that primarily. Sure. You can't you can keep doing it endlessly. The fact is, is that when the U.S. set up the Bretton Woods arrangements with the victorious World War II powers, with the exception of the Soviet Union, obviously, but basically everyone else was involved in setting up the post World War II currency regime which was centered around the dollar, and the dollar itself was backed by the substantial gold reserves of the United States. And that that was all negotiated in 1944. It did not become fully operational uh, until the 1950s, uh, but then it remained in operation until August 1971, when President Nixon decided by executive order that the restraint uh, of gold was inconvenient and that he would temporarily suspend gold convertibility. I love that word temporarily out of yeah. speech, which was, which was over 40 years ago, right? Yeah. Um, but the reason why I believe a return to gold is now inevitable, not just likely, not just probable, but inevitable, is through a thorough application of theory and also a look at history. The world is no longer hegemonic. When Bretton Woods was set up, the U.S. was an economic hegemon. When mm-hmm. Nixon went off the gold standard, yes, the U.S., had lost a substantial degree of relative economic power, but it was still very, very dominant uh, even in 1971. The problem is, is that in the subsequent 40 years, we have come a long way, and it has got to the point where the world is properly thought of as being economically multipolar. You've had the, the rise of the European Union. I mean, notwithstanding the recent crises, nevertheless, as an economic area, it has grown very dramatically relative to the U.S. over the past 40 years. Um, then you have the um, the former uh, Soviet Union, where you have a Russian economy, which has issues, don't get me wrong, but is the world's largest oil exporter and has been growing very rapidly in recent years. Then you have you know, China, which is no longer a purely communist country and in economic terms is arguably more uh, dynamic than the United States today. Uh, India, to a lesser uh, degree, the same story. Brazil, also uh, somewhat the same story. And when you start adding up all of these rising powers, their collective economic weight is now greater than that of the United States. We simply no longer live in this hegemonic world. The United States is no longer in a position to dictate terms in economic matters and therefore is not in a position to dictate terms in monetary matters. And and what that means is that if the rest of the world starts to perceive that U.S. monetary policies are incompatible with their own objectives, they will seek ways to reduce dependence on the dollar as a currency. Because if you're using the dollar as a currency, either for transactions or as reserves and savings, uh, then by implication you are importing U.S. economic policy into your own economy. Mm -hmm. And you have tremendous pushback now from the so-called BRIC 
countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, but also other countries who do not believe it is in their best interests for the Fed simply to print money and inflate uh, whenever a crisis rolls around, which may or may not uh, be uh, one that directly affects these emerging markets. So if you look at it from that perspective, the balance of power has shifted so dramatically that if the Fed keeps you know, sailing too close to the wind, as it were, by pushing the limits of what the U.S. can get away with in terms of monetary policy, well, at some point, people simply stop using the dollar. And then it's really a sort of checkmate, game-over situation for the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, in Chapter 7 of your book, you passed along a scenario in which the U.S. might be forced to return to a gold standard. It was... Uh, really a picture painted by James Rickards uh, involving Russia and Iran. Could you possibly pass that on to our, to our listeners? Uh, absolutely, and I, I've corresponded with James Rickards, and he kindly has allowed me to use some of the material of his you know, very, very interesting book, uh, Currency Wars. Uh, basically, Chapter 7 is built around a scenario, uh, that, again, that Rickards proposed some years back where Russia – would be so dissatisfied uh, with U.S. foreign policy. There'd be some issue which was just so pressing that, you know, rather than try to engage the U.S. in any way militarily, which for any country would still probably be suicidal because U.S. military power is so vast, Russia would rather attempt something a little bit more subtle, perhaps along the lines of what that great uh, Chinese general Sun Tzu would have recommended, where you attempt to fight your opponent where he's weakest, not where he's strongest. And in this case, Russia would initiate a form of economic warfare against the United States by unilaterally placing itself onto a gold standard. And because Russia is the world's largest oil exporter, they would basically require payment for their oil in gold, and that's oil which is required by a large number of countries. So, you know, think about it. All of a sudden, overnight, the U.S. is blindsided by this Russian decision to back its currency with gold. And sensing that the U.S. was already weakening economically as a power, you know, but and needing that oil uh, from Russia, a lot of current, uh, countries would decide, well, wait a minute, we're holding all of these dollar reserves, but in fact, what we really need is oil, a lot of which comes from Russia. We're concerned about the U.S. economy anyway. Gee, this is an opportunity for us to diversify some of our dollar reserves into these new gold-backed Russian currency reserves instead. So let's go ahead and do that. And of course, as the world starts to do that, you could have very sudden and dramatic downward pressure on the dollar and upward pressure on U.S. interest rates, which could trigger a full-blown financial crisis, I would argue, larger than that which occurred in 2008. Mm-hmm. I mean, keep in mind, what happened in 2008 originated from within the U.S. financial system. If you have a crisis which is being originated in the international arena where all of the holders of dollars suddenly have an excuse to hold fewer dollars and choose to diversify, there's really not a whole lot U.S. authorities can do about it. It's not as if that just by supporting their own banks, they stop the dollar going down. In fact, by guaranteeing the liabilities of U.S. banks, the Fed would accelerate the dollar's decline because you have to print more dollars to help the banks deal with a sudden sharply higher rate of interest. So, it's a fascinating scenario posed by Rickards. It's one that I use as one example of many mm-hmm. uh, that could lead to a crisis which would basically lead the world very abruptly away from the dollar as the preeminent reserve currency. 
but then you get onto a slippery slope. There's no other currency in the world which is really in a position to replace the role of the dollar Mm -hmm. in its hegemonic heyday when it was Mm -hmm. clearly the most important currency in the world. And if you look at history, in every instance of currency uh, uh, reform, currency regime change that occurs within a multipolar context, you always find that gold is at the center of that system and at the center of that change. So I think history is clear on this point. The combination of a weaker U.S., the rise of a multipolar world, and dissatisfaction with U.S. monetary policy generally is leading us back onto some form of gold standard, whether it's instigated by Russia or who knows who. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of history, you mentioned your book, uh, England, in the 1870s. Are you seeing some parallels between that time period and this one then? Absolutely. You know, a lot of people just kind of assume that when it comes to things like international monetary arrangements, that these are the sorts of things that are put together, you know, in a room behind closed doors by heads of state in mm-hmm. an orderly negotiated fashion, and then it just becomes, you know, the, the law of, well, in this case, sort of the international convention. But actually, the way in which the classical gold standard of the 19th century came into existence was not following any formal process at all. It arose spontaneously from the ground up, in large part because there was a lack of cooperation in international affairs. Mm-hmm. You know, Britain had this large empire which used the pound sterling as its currency, but you had Germany as a rising unified power in Central Europe that had its own gold-backed currency. You had other countries, some of which were pegged to the pound sterling, others also used a gold backing, but there was no uniform agreement. But then, as a result of a series of largely just spontaneous developments in Europe, which were catalyzed in part by the Franco-Prussian War of 1871, you had a general move to gold backing. And indeed, Great Britain, the most powerful economy of the day, not yet on a pure gold standard, ended up choosing to adopt one because it saw the writing on the wall. The the Bank of England decided it was in the best interest of the United Kingdom to move to a gold-backed reserve, and that's exactly what they did. But they didn't dictate it. It wasn't a hegemonic decision. It arose out of a multipolar world with a relative lack of cooperation, and that's exactly where we are today. Yeah, it's uh, it, it does definitely does seem to be uh, definitely does seem to be parallels there. Um, two weeks ago, I had both Ron Paul and Louis Lehrman on this show to talk about a move forward to a gold standard. You know, both of these gentlemen had been on Ronald Reagan's uh, commission to study the possibility back in 1982 to return to a gold standard, and both are currently working hard in their own way to try to get the U.S. to to adapt a gold standard once again. And they, they both, though, see the advantage uh, of us moving towards a gold standard voluntarily rather than having it forced on us, as, as uh, you just mentioned might be the case. Would you agree that it would be in the best interest uh, of America, the United States, to do this voluntarily as opposed to have it forced on them? Well, if you think about it, uh, if indeed the rest of the world is moving in this direction anyway for the reasons we just discussed, then certainly it would be very disorderly, you know, were U.S. policymakers to wake up one morning and find that they had a dollar crisis on their hands. Mm. And all of the uh, reforms, all of the emergency measures that would be necessary to stabilize the U.S. financial system in such an event could be prevented 
if the U.S. were simply to bite the bullet now and take the necessary actions to place itself back onto some form of gold standard. Certainly, it's always preferable to try and uh, sort out uh, the seeds of, you know, whatever may be leading to a potential crisis, the issues, be it the the excessive debt, for example, that the U.S. has and the the double-digit deficits, which imply an exponential growth in that debt, and, you know, everything else. We we all know the U.S. has its share of economic problems, not that other countries in the world don't, Mm -hmm. but the U.S. dollar is... Special, it is still the preeminent global reserve currency. Mm-hmm. But the U.S. enjoys this unusually low level of interest rates, which could disappear in a heartbeat if the dollar loses that reserve status. The United States has far more to lose by not trying to get preemptive control of its economic problems, including placing itself back onto some form of gold standard. So my book does. Uh, suggest that the United States move in that direction, does offer a framework to move in that direction. I, I'm aware that Lewis Lehrman has published you know, his framework quite recently, and you know, Ron Paul has been involved in, in, in that. I choose uh, a, a slightly simpler, older framework just for ease of illustration, which was advocated by economic journalist Henry Hazlitt mm-hmm. already back in the 1950s and early 1960s. He was advocating a return to actual gold banking and gold coinage in the United mm-hmm. States. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I use his example as a very simple one for how you could go about restoring gold convertibility. But I'm in full agreement that it is certainly in the best interest of the United States to act preemptively on this one and not be overtaken by events uh, and face a crisis in order of magnitude greater than 2008. Well, you understand the reason why we should go back uh, and do it voluntarily, but what do you think the chances are that our president, either the current one or possibly the new one, uh, would understand that and his advisors would understand that? It seems to me that the establishment uh, certainly wouldn't have a clue about what you just said in terms of the advantages of moving voluntarily onto a gold standard. What do you think the chances are uh, that, that you know the, the views of Lewis Lehrman and Ron Paul would prevail? Without a crisis. Well, you know, I mean, their views were in the minority even back in 1981-82 when the Gold Commission was doing its work. And back then, of course, the United States had just endured the dreaded stagflationary 1970s and the early 80s recession courtesy of sharply higher interest rates and Paul Volcker uh, working to bring inflation down. Certainly there's a sense of crisis in the U.S. today. I'm not sure it's quite as immediate as the sense of crisis was in the early 1980s. Back then, you know, you had a number of quite prominent U.S. economists uh, who were at least you know, willing to consider a return to the gold standard, mm-hmm. including Alan Greenspan, who mm-hmm. wrote, published an op-ed uh, in the Wall Street Journal in 1981 recommending that the Treasury begin to issue gold-backed Treasury bonds. Uh, and that with each subsequent issue, more and more of the U.S. Treasury debt outstanding would be backed by gold, and eventually 100% of it would be backed by gold, and this would be a simple way over time to nudge the U.S. back onto a proper gold standard. Whereas today, the idea is sadly so far out of the economic mainstream, I have to agree with you, it's highly unlikely that any president uh, or his advisors today would even begin to consider a return to gold as a way of beginning to sort out 
a uh, you know the U.S. economic problems generally, and it, it's a shame. It's a shame that the tremendous knowledge and experience of how gold worked and how it maintained stability of the money supply, how that helps to achieve economic stability, all the benefits that would accrue to the United States were it to go about placing itself back on gold. You just have an entire generation of economists and policymakers who have just no no memory of that, no idea of that whatsoever. Um, so they take elastic fiat currency for granted, and yet they don't they don't connect the dots between how this unbacked dollar, in fact, made 2008 possible. The primary contributor to this huge financial crisis was unbridled excessive money and credit growth, which we still haven't got under control and won't get under control until we take it out of the hands of politicians and place you know, the United States back onto some sort of gold standard. So it, I, I think the odds, I mean, to answer your question, I think the odds of the U.S. choosing to do this voluntarily over any reasonable time frame, say, inside of you know, five years or something, is is awfully small, I mean, very close to zero. Yeah, I would I would have to believe uh, that you're right about that, but certainly uh, we may be taught the lessons that you talk about the hard way. You know, one of the biggest objections that we hear from most people about going back into gold standard, or at least a lot of people, say, well, there's simply not enough gold out there to do it. How do you respond to that excuse? Well, I think it's a fundamental misconception of the way a gold standard works because the amount of gold uh, that has been mined, the amount of gold in existence above ground, and indeed by extension you could say the amount of gold in the Earth's crust, which you can estimate using geophysical techniques, it, it may be finite, yes, mm -hmm. but it's only finite by weight and volume. It's not finite by price. <laughs> and the, you know, the value or market capitalization, if you want to use that, that frame of reference, the, the market capitalization of the gold in existence uh, is entirely a function of price. Ultimately, it can go up, it can go down. And you have enough theoretical value in that existing gold today to back any uh, money, to back any financial system, to provide confidence to the entire global economy. It's simply a question of re-monetizing gold. It's that easy because once it is re-monetized, then everybody knows more or less how much supply is in existence. And if everyone knows what the supply is, well, they can stop trying to guess what it's going to be from one day to the next. They just know what it is. And what that means is they can go about their business knowing that the supply of money is not something they have to worry about. It will greatly simplify economic calculation. It will greatly simplify investment decision-making and asset allocation generally because it removes this one variable. A few minutes ago, or moments ago, I mentioned uh, how Alan Greenspan wrote this uh, pro-gold op-ed in 1981. Well, it also happens to be the case mm -hmm. that he was very concerned that the rising rates of inflation in the 1970s were doing tremendous unseen economic damage to the United States because they were complicating basic economic calculation and investment decisions. And Greenspan went so far as to say 
that the uncertainty associated with inflation is probably resulting in businesses choosing simply not to invest, not to build new factories, not to create jobs, because they aren't certain enough regarding what the future price level is going to be, and of course that future price level being a function of the money supply. So we've got to get out of this vicious circle of trying to fight the problems associated with uncertainty by creating even more uncertainty, by creating even more money. We've got to get out of this vicious circle, and once we get back into onto a gold standard, we will be out of that vicious circle, and the price of gold will rise as much as it needs to rise to provide the trust and confidence and credibility that a stable, inelastic monetary regime would require. Given the amount of money that's in circulation now, um, what, are your, what is your sense of how high the price of gold may need to rise to make a, a return to a gold system viable? Well, I've used the words trust and credibility, and that's what this exercise would all be about. You know, what is money other than a form of trust and credibility, which you offer in exchange for actual goods and services? So if you're going to have credibility around a gold standard today, then you need the gold convertibility ratio with the dollar to be at a level which would not simply lead everybody to exchange their dollars for gold because then, of course, the gold reserve would be drained and the whole thing would collapse. So mm-hmm. the, the, the nominal price of gold has to rise by an order of magnitude. And if you look at history, if you look at what the gold reserve backing for the dollar has been through history, and if you look at sort of a, an order of magnitude for that, it's really a non-starter to think that the U.S. could remonetize gold in any form, at a price less than around $10,000 an ounce. Wow. And look, I mean, that may seem high, but what really should seem high is the fact that the money supply growth has just been exponential for decades. Ever since Nixon went off gold, there has been this exponential rise in the supply of money and also the supply of of credit in, Mm -hmm. in various forms. So, I mean, that's what should really shock us, the fact that credit has grown on average, whatever it is, I think about 8 to 10% a year for the last few decades, whereas GDP growth hasn't even averaged 3%. Uh, yeah. we're, we're generating all this money and all this credit, and we're not getting a whole lot for it in actual growth. So, I mean, that's what should be shocking us. Well, so, yes, the price would need to be a lot higher, I think at a minimum $10,000 in my book, I make the claim that it would probably have to be even higher than that, mm-hmm. probably uh, over $13,000. Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly want uh, to recommend to our listeners that they buy this book, The Golden Revolution, How to Prepare for the Coming Global Gold Standard. And, John, you know, one of the questions that comes to mind when you talk about numbers like that is what happens to people that have the insight, the foresight, to go out and buy gold at 250 or $300, $400, $500 over the last number of years, over the last decade, what happens to their gold? Will they be allowed to keep it when we go back onto a, a gold standard? I think yes. Now, I understand that there is concern in the United States regarding the possibility of gold confiscation because this is something that FDR did in the depth of the Great Depression to try to relieve pressure on the banking system. That said, I don't think it would happen this time around. And the reason why is that if you think about what allows gold to help the U.S. to solve its problems and to restore economic stability and healthy growth, 
the only way remonetizing gold is going to help the U.S. to move forward, and of course the rest of the world is going to force the issue one way or another, as we discussed earlier, but the only way the U.S. can really benefit from it is if the gold is able to move from one place to another. And if it's not able to move from one place to another, it won't be able to help reduce liabilities. It won't be able to help deleverage the system. If gold simply remains hoarded by private individuals who are unwilling to give it up, um, then you're going to have a situation where, again, it's going to be very difficult for the system to, to, to deleverage itself. And then for the U.S. to come out and say, well, wait a minute, we're going to nationalize all of it. Mm-hmm. Well, that is also problematic because... The banking system uh, itself is what is short reserves, right? It's the banks that need those reserves. It's the banks that where all the excessive debt and leverage is concentrated. What you really need is for gold to be remonetized, for the price to rise sufficiently that the accumulated debt burdens of the United States decline in real terms, and you need that gold to be transferred from private individuals over time who don't need to hoard it except to uh, protect themselves and benefit from the remonetization. But once it happens, that gold could then flow from the individuals back into the financial system where it would provide the reserve backing for the banks who would then actually be able to back the banknotes with actual gold reserves. I mean, that is where this should go. And it's where ultimately, if the United States wants a functioning financial system in the future, it's where it needs to go. Mm-hmm. So you can't have a situation, you can't fully realize the benefits of gold at all if you don't allow the gold to flow out of private savings hoards back into the financial system. Mm-hmm. So I think the idea that the U.S. will simply seek to confiscate it, given our current starting point is unlikely. It's a different starting point than in the 1930s. Well, I sure hope you're right about that, John. Uh, Certainly, many of our listeners have been buying gold over the years, for sure. Uh, We just don't have enough time uh, with you. There's so many more questions I have for you, but those questions would be answered, I think, quite certainly, in The Golden Revolution, How to Prepare for the Coming Global Gold Standard, a book, an excellent book by John Butler, Thank you so much, John, for being with us. Uh, folks, oh, I, I do want to ask you also, you do have a, a blog or a website where people can follow your work because I know you, you write a lot about the economy and, and, um, and the events that are taking shape right now. What is that uh, website where they can follow your work? Well, yes, uh, I maintain an archive of my newsletter, the Amphora Report, at my website, www.amphora.com. Amphora, that's A-M-P-H-O-R-A dash alpha dot com. So uh, listeners can locate the archive and peruse past newsletters uh, at that website. Yeah, it's an excellent uh, article that I just read that you that you wrote also on uh, on the inflation deflation issue, and that uh, wished we had time to talk about it. We are out of time, unfortunately. Thank you so much, John. Uh, for being with us. Uh, Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with Bill Maher. He's the CEO of an up-and-coming gold mining company in Ontario, namely Prodigy Gold. Don't go away. I'll be right back. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. 
Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Brian Marr. He's the president and CEO of Prodigy Gold Corporation. Uh, this company is developing a gold project near Wawa, Ontario, known as the uh, Magino Gold Project, and it's based on the uh, on all the information that I have uh, been able to glean from this research, uh, from, from the research that I've done, is it looks like a very highly uh, pr- um, uh, robust uh, project. Uh, the company trades under the symbol PDG uh, in Toronto. It's got 293.2 million shares outstanding. Last I looked earlier today, it was at 60 cents, uh, giving it a market cap of $176 million. Welcome, Brian, uh, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Welcome again. Thanks for having me on the show today, Jay. Really good. I don't know if you happened to hear uh, the last uh, uh, guest that we had on our show, John Butler. Uh, he's written a book uh, called The Golden Revolution in which he's uh, – Projecting a, um, in which he is projecting uh, a gold price of in excess of ten thousand uh, dollars, which he says is going to have to be, uh, because he believes that we are inevitably heading back to a gold standard. So, instead of the people minting money at the Federal Reserve, it will be companies like yours, I, I suppose, if you're successful and get into production, it will be not minting well, minting money for sure, uh, real money, the stuff from the ground, Mother Nature, and what the markets have really uh, has, have really chosen as money. Uh, so um, I don't know what you're, if you'd like to comment just briefly on what your sense is uh, with respect to gold and the outlook for gold going forward before we start talking about your project. Well, I tend to take a, a more conservative view on long-term gold prices. Uh, part of it's just uh, my experience in being in production and being through several metal cycles. Um, and I do appreciate uh, what the prognosticators say and the various reasons why we can expect to see some significant high gold prices in, in the medium and long term. Um, but when I take it back from the reference point of, for example, our country, our company, where we're looking at having, you know, 
costs of production in the 450 to $500 range and seeing some, you know, very large project net present values based upon those types of gold prices. And if we were to see anything in excess of $2,000 gold price, this means our company is going to be fabulously more profitable. The value of our company will reflect that and it will be a significant reward for our shareholders. Um, regardless of what the ultimate price of gold is, I think it's key uh, to kind of look at you know, people like ourselves that are coming into production that will have a stream of production over the next 15 or 20 years and re- you know, realize that they represent true value in the marketplace today. Yeah, for sure. Well, I like to remind my subscribers all the time that it's not really the nominal price of gold, but what is the real price of gold and what makes me so bullish on the uh, on this industry right now, in the gold mining industry, which I think is the bull market of a lifetime right now, is not the nominal price of gold, but relative, but the relative price of gold uh, to materials cost, energy cost, and so forth. And as I remind my my listeners and my subscribers, we're on a tear since Lehman Brothers, uh, from 17% of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund to almost 50% now this past week. So gold mining profits have been surging, and so it looks to me. Um, Brian, as if you're going to be, your timing should be very good. When do you expect to put your Magina property into production? Well, right now, Jay, we're looking at completing a pre-feasibility study early in 2013. Uh, alongside that pre-feasibility study, though, will be the submission of all the proper documents so that we can gain permits to construct and operate the gold mine. Assuming there's no unusual delays with the provincial government in Ontario, that would allow us to begin groundbreaking at the site in 2014 and actually begin to produce gold in late 2015 with full commercial production in early 2016. Our most recent preliminary economic assessment outlined an 11-year mine life, so you can see that we would be in production from 2016 up to 2027. That being said, I'd, I'd just like to point out to your listeners that you know we plan on updating the project's resource estimate uh, sometime next week. We'll actually have the press release out, and we're expecting that to show an increase in the number of resources, which, of course, will mean that we'll go back to the drawing board in anticipation of that pre-feasibility study, and I think we'll be looking at a longer mine life and even a more robust production profile throughout that whole time period. So uh, in line with what you're saying earlier, our timing vis-a-vis the gold marketplace seems to be quite good. Yeah, indeed it does. Uh, you also have, I think the last I checked, you had a pretty good stash of cash uh, in uh, in your bank account, which is very, very important these days for uh, in a market that's pretty difficult in terms of raising money. Uh, talk to us about your uh, your financial situation right now. Well, I think that's a good point. And when you start looking at the junior development sector, of the mining industry, I think one of the things that helps distinguish companies is that cash on the balance sheet. Um, yes, the equity market is difficult right now, and if one was looking for cash, you'd be fighting an uphill battle. And that's when I stand back and I look at our balance sheet and I see that you know we have nearly sixty million dollars in hand. We have a budget in place that will get us all the way through feasibility and still leave us with over twenty million dollars by the uh, second quarter of twenty thirteen. That puts us in an advantageous position in that we won't need to go to the equity markets to raise money, not until we actually start thinking about breaking ground. And with that in mind, uh, with the current uh, credit markets, at least credit markets as they're reflected in the mining industry, there are plenty of ways to move the project forward without having to you know, suffer excess dilution that could harm our shareholders and still do it at a very attractive cost of capital. So yeah. we're, you know, we're very uh, upbeat about the future because we do have cash on hand. 
Yeah, rightfully so. It's so important. You, uh, I think the last I noticed, your your past PEA suggested two hundred fifty thousand ounces a year. Is that right? Over eleven year mine life. Yeah, that's that's the most recent PEA. And as I I mentioned with the new resource number coming up, we'll, we'll be revising those numbers in the PEA through the pre feasibility process. And just as we expect to see the resource number go up, we also expect to see that production profile to rise as well, both on a yearly basis and as a total number of ounces produced over the life of the mine. Well, that's a pretty, that's a pretty hefty number for a, for a single mining project. I, I know that you have growth aspects, uh, uh, aspirations as well. You're looking uh, recently, I, I noticed that you picked up a property. It's a pure exploration property, I guess, at this stage. Could you talk just a, a minute about that? Yeah, what we have realized is as we plan to go toward production, that's fine. But if we're building a true sustainable business enterprise focused on gold mining, we need to start a pipeline of projects so that we have exploration opportunities, development opportunities to come along and essentially um, augment what we're already doing at Magino. Uh, if you look at how the larger successful mining companies have built themselves, it's never been on a single project basis, but it's by going out and identifying other opportunities, whether they be, you know, greenfield exploration like this West Porcupine project you refer to or a more advanced uh, project. You need to build up a pipeline so that you have projects in development, projects in production. And what we're simply doing is setting the stage for Prodigy to be you know, not only a sustainable enterprise but a growing enterprise in the years to come. Bill, we only have about a minute left. One of the concerns a lot of people have about companies like yours, you, you were an exploration company, you're turning into a producer. Uh, the number of companies that are successful and able to, to do both, uh, because both, uh, both require completely different skill sets, exploration one, production another, how can you give people the confidence that you will be the exception to the rule? A lot of juniors don't make it. How, what do you have, uh, personnel? Uh, I think is the answer, but perhaps you just take a minute to, to tell our listeners about the people you have and why you're confident you can actually uh, uh, pull it off and uh, and, and uh, develop a successful company. Well, you're exactly right, Jay. It's all about the people. And we've been very careful to build a strong engineering group that can lead the company all the way through the uh, design, construction, and operation process. And it does take a special skill set. And when you look at who we have here, Fred Mason, our VP of operations, with over 35 years of experience globally building and operating complex mining operations. Uh, Ricardo Rojas, who just joined us from Pan American Silver as our mine manager, who's been operating gold mines on a global basis as well. We've already developed a strong engineering team with, with nearly 100 years of operational experience. Because we have these gentlemen on board to oversee the whole process, I am very confident that we'll be one of the successful companies in making that difficult transition from explorer to developer to operator. Well, you certainly do have a very talented staff and uh, um, uh, workforce, no doubt about that. Uh, we are out of time, unfortunately. I want to tell our listeners that they can follow um, this company and its progress at ProdigyGold.com. I guess that's your website? Yes, that's correct, Jay. ProdigyGold.com. Thank you very much, Brian, for being with us uh, again. And uh, I'm going to pass on those, uh, those resource results as soon as they come out in our public uh, to our listeners going forward. Thank you very much. Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with uh, some comments on today's show as well as uh, a word about next week's guest. Don't go away.
Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm here with some uh, closing thoughts on today's show and also uh, to let you know, maybe I'll just do that first. Next week's guest is going to be Alana Mercer, uh, who wrote an excellent book about the post-apartheid South Africa called Inside the Cannibal's Pot. And this really has relevance, I believe, to the United States today because Ileana uh, will uh, explain, I think, about uh, about the importance of private property. And once the government starts taking away private property, it's just a matter of time, uh, if that's not abated, that the government will take away our, our freedoms and our liberties and our very lives even at times. That's, that's history. That's historical. That's not, uh, that's not fantasy, uh, unfortunately. We're also going to talk to Gene Epstein, who, uh, will, uh, he is a, a columnist at, uh, Barron's. He's been writing for many years, an economist, a very insightful, a free market advocate. Gene Epstein will be with us next week to talk about Crony capitalism, except he has a new word. He's coined a word called crapitalism. That's C-R-A-P-I-T-A-L-I-S-M, crapitalism. He'll be here to talk to us next week. Well, just a word about today's guest. I really uh, was thrilled to have all of them with me, but certainly uh, Bill Bergman, is. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to him because I just sort of sense that this is a man that's unusual in the sense that he is looking for truth and that he puts certain things perhaps ahead of his own interest, 
Um, and he certainly did that with respect to his career at the Federal Reserve. Uh, most people will keep their mouths shut and just goosed up in line with the orders that are given to them. Bill Bergman is searching for the truth, and he says he can't keep still. He still wants to know why in the world did nine, uh, M1 increase so dramatically? Why was cash pulled out in such huge amounts prior to 9-11? Who knew that 9-11 was about to happen? Or maybe it's an innocent explanation, as he suggested, perhaps something going on in Argentina was to blame. Well, I don't know, but I do respect Bill Bergman very greatly for his insights into the monetary system, uh, his critique of a lot of the problems that the Fed uh, and our monetary system has in terms of moral hazard, all kinds of other things, insights we didn't have the time to ask him about. We will uh, talk to him about it in the near future. Also, it was good to have Kerry Lutz with us today. Uh, Kerry um, is a radio show host and very much, uh, I like to think, uh, very much like myself, is really looking for the truth and realizing that you can't get it, at least not the whole truth, from the mainstream. The mainstream has its own interest to protect. The mainstream is owned by uh, many people that connect to the military-industrial complex, which are connected to government. They're looking for special privileges from government, which is really what uh, Gene Epstein is talking about when he talks about capitalism, capitalism, Gene Epstein, next week. Uh, also, just a word about John Butler, his notion that we need... Uh, in excess of $10,000 gold to make the system work. And John is absolutely convinced that it's inevitable that the world is going to go back on a gold standard. Will we be able to keep the gold that we have bought at 300 to $500? That's the big question. John Butler thinks so. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, next week, uh, as I said, we'll be, we'll be back again with those guests I just mentioned. I want to thank Tacey Trump, my executive uh, producer, for making the show uh, logistically possible, along with Justin Jackman, my engineer. Both thank you very much, and thank you for listening, making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.